Welcome to the Willow Valley Podcasting Channel, where exciting podcasts are created by Willow Valley residents, for Willow Valley residents, and about Willow Valley residents. Good day. This is Bill Adams. You know, if you've been around for a while, you've heard all about submarines. But I would say perhaps when we're through this podcast, you'll say, I never really knew all that about submarines. And I have with us Dan Cooper, retired from the U.S. Navy, who's going to tell us a lot about submarines and about more. So, Dan, I want to start with helping everybody understand your career. Tell us about your, uh, your naval career and the various stages and ranks you went through. Well, uh, I was very fortunate to uh, get an opportunity to go to the Naval Academy, which I had wanted to do for about 15 years before I did. I went through the Naval Academy. When I got out, at that time, every graduate from the Academy who went into the Navy was required to go to sea on a surface ship before they went into either aviation or submarines. So I did that. I was on an amphibious ship. We made the landing in Lebanon in 1958. After 18 months on this ship, then I got to go to submarine school, which was six months. Once I graduated from there, I went aboard the USS Trigger, which was a diesel submarine in Charleston, South Carolina. I was there for three years and then was fortunate to go to Harvard for a year in international relations. And after I finished Harvard, I was asked to go to Washington to be interviewed by Admiral Rickover for the nuclear power program. I did that. Then the next year was very uh, solid and difficult training in nuclear power. After that, then I went aboard my first nuclear submarine, which was a, a, uh, an attack submarine. I was there for a year, and once I qualified as engineer on that ship, I was then sent to an a missile submarine, an SSBN, where I was executive officer for two years. After that, I went to Washington for a couple years in the Pentagon. Then I went to command of my submarine out at Pearl Harbor, and that was an attack submarine. After I left that submarine, uh, then I went back to Washington for duty, and then shortly thereafter was selected for flag officer or admiral and became the controller of the Naval Sea Systems Command, which is the command that oversees all the building and repair of all the ships. And what is your rank at this point? At this point, I was a Rear Admiral Lower Half. Mm -hmm. uh, after I finished that job, I became the Navy's budget officer and was promoted to two stars. And in that position, I was in charge of developing the budget for both the Navy service and for the Marine Corps, the whole department of the Navy. I was there three years and then got three stars and became the director of Navy program planning. And after about nine months there, I was sent to Norfolk to be the commander of the Submarine Force U.S. Atlantic Fleet. I was there for two years and then went to become the deputy chief of Naval Operations for undersea warfare. And then after three years, I retired in 1990. Let's talk about submarines. You mentioned a couple of them, attacks, submarines, uh, strategic. Um, 
two things. Uh, take them whatever order you like. Tell us about the different kinds of submarines, and why is a submarine such an effective weapon for both offense and defense? Well, first let me say there are basically two types of submarines. There are diesel submarines and there are nuclear submarines. During World War II, everybody had diesel submarines, and they're the ones that made the big splash. We lost 52 submarines in World War II, but they did phenomenal things, particularly in the Pacific. Now we have nuclear submarines only. The United States is the one country that only has nuclear submarines. We have no diesel submarines. The rest of the countries in the world have diesel submarines. The nuclear submarines you can put into two categories. The attack submarines, which essentially carry torpedoes and some cruise missiles, that submarine goes out and looks around and tries to find out what other people are doing. We then have the strategic submarine, which carries intercontinental missiles. And that submarine goes out and hides in various parts of the ocean for one, two, two and a half months, and that is a deterrent. We have in the United States the strategic triad, which includes submarines, land-based missiles, and missiles carried on aircraft. But ours is the SSBN, which stands for SS submarine, B for ballistic missile, N for nuclear. You say the attack submarine, one of its role is to listen to what other people are doing. Like what? <laughs> well, you just go out there to see if you have anything out there in the ocean. Well, you want to know what other people are doing with the naval forces, or can you do some monitoring of ground activity? Uh, primarily things within the water, primarily things within <laughs> the ocean. And, you know, it may be experiments going on. It may be uh, surface ships going by. It may be all sorts of things. Whatever's out there, you're looking to find out so that you know what is going on. For most of us, a submarine is a long tube with a lot of men, very qualified, largely men on it, that are living under the water for a long, long time. <laughs> and that's about the extent of our knowledge. Let's talk a little bit about, um, well, first of all, about the nuclear sub. When I hear those two put together, I often think, and others may be, wow, you got a nuclear power plant underwater all that time? Uh, how do you keep it safe? The primary way that you ensure the safety of a submarine is by the training of the people on the submarine. And everyone who is a submariner has gone through pretty intensive training not only on the nuclear end, but on the forward end, where you have other people doing things that maintain the submarine. You're also concerned about the building of the submarine. And as we started building nuclear submarines, we were very fortunate to have a gentleman named Admiral Hyman George Rickover. If it were not for Admiral Rickover, we would in no way have had the success that we have had nor would we have had the nuclear safety record that we have had. He was adamant in having full control of the nuclear program. And by that, I mean he personally 
selected up until 1983 when he died. He personally selected every officer who ever went aboard a nuclear submarine. My goodness. He interviewed them. He, he had the record before him. He had people before him to interview. Then he took those interviews, and then he would call the gentleman in. And having been exposed to that interrogation on three occasions, I will tell you, it was not a particularly comfortable position to be in. But Rickover demanded that every person involved, whether it was the manufacturer of the submarine, the officers running in the submarine, the people testing the submarine, each one of those to adhere to very rigid requirements to ensure that we had nuclear safety in every part of the program. He was also extremely interested in personnel safety. And in that regard, when you have a nuclear plant, you want to make sure you have shielding so no radiation emanates from the nuclear plant out into the atmosphere within the submarine. Mm. And so he also monitored each individual on there. But I know of no program personally where anyone was as much in complete control of the total program from beginning to end than Rickover. We were very fortunate to have him. There were many people in the hierarchy of the Navy that would not have agreed with me. And many of them, many times, tried to undercut Rickover and this nuclear program. Mm. But because of his dedication and absolute determination, we have had an extremely safe program. We have never had release of nuclear energy from a submarine. Now, other countries have not had a good experience, do I understand? Uh, I would say this? that's correct, and particularly the Soviet Union. What happened there? Uh, in several cases, they had nuclear release due to accidents that they had on board the ship. They have lost a couple of their nuclear submarines. We've lost two submarines. We lost a submarine in 1963 when the thresher went down coming out of a shipyard. We lost a Scorpion in 1968, a ship returning from operations. But we have also monitored both of those submarines throughout the years, and there has never been any nuclear radiation from those submarines, primarily as a result of all the things done and led by Admiral Rickover. That's good to hear, because for many people, Rickover was considered an, an angry obstructionist, and you're, you are uh, painting quite a different picture. Let me go back to life on the sub. These men, and now women on a sub, are highly trained engineers. Tell us about the personnel. I mean, for, let me start with the first part. What, do you, what does it take to get on a sub in terms of personality, uh, size, uh, training, ad, ad, attitude? Primarily, uh, you have to be cleared to go on there. Obviously, in some way, you've had certain psychological, at least people observing you, or doing some testing in some way, because you have to be amenable to working with other people. We can't have somebody who cycles on a moment's <laughs> notice. And so there's a certain amount of ensuring that each individual has a personality that is amenable to being underwater, to being in that particular location 
for up to two months. And that two months is about the longest, maybe 70, 75 days that you're actually away from a port. You may be away from your home port for six months, mm. but you're going in and out of another port at some point. No, no dumb question. <laughs> Do you ever surface? Uh, let me put it this way. I was on in a, a missile submarine that we left Charleston, South Carolina. And as soon as we got into deep water, we submerged. And 72 days later, we surfaced at that same point. Hmm. So, yes, you surface. You may come up to find your location. We use satellites for navigation, and you may come up for that. But uh, under normal conditions, you would not come up until you were about to go into a port. Coming back to life on the sub, uh, <laughs> that's a lot of food for a lot of people. Uh, how, do you, how do they go about planning the amount of food and what kind of food do you get on a sub? Well, the food is good. Um, the first two weeks you're underway, you will have some fresh food. After two weeks, the food is not fresh, but you have refer refrigerators on board, you have freeze boxes, and you load accordingly. When you go to sea when you're being deployed, you can expect to have about 90 days food on board. Now, the last 10 days may be a little sparse, <laughs> but you do have that amount of food. And what happens, in fact, is when you first go to sea with 90 days on board, you will have boxes with cans in them that you walk on in parts of the ship other than the nuclear plant. You will never put food back in the nuclear plant, but you will store all the food you can the extra food you will be walking on until such time that room is available in the storage sites. On the floor of the passageways. Uh, that's correct. Interesting. Never knew that. He even commented that the food is generally as good as you get anywhere in the Navy. Is that right? In the Navy, each individual gets a certain amount each month allocated for his food. That is, that money goes to wherever you're living and those people use the total money then to buy the food and so on. And on a submarine, we actually, at least as long as I was there, we actually got a little bit more per ration per person. Hmm. Let me come to an indelicate subject. <laughs> a lot of food, a lot of waste. What do you do with it? Well, you have normal facilities and you have what we called sanitary tanks, and all the residue goes into the sanitary tank, and that tank then, when you are capable of doing it, will be flushed, actually blown out to sea. Ah. And so when you're out of ways, and you don't, you want to make sure you don't make any noise when you're in an area where uh, noise, you might, people might be able to detect you by the noise you make. And so you judiciously figure out when you're going to do it, and then you blow those tanks dry. Ah. You mentioned the silent service. How difficult is it to stay quiet, and how important is it to stay quiet as an under, so underwater vessel? That's all in the engineering of both the rotating machinery, for instance, and the way you build the submarine. And you build the submarine so that you have 
a platform within the submarine that has sound mounting for that total platform. Then on top of that, you have various machines, rotating machinery that is also on extra sound mounts. Then around the submarine itself, you have certain engineering mechanisms by which sound will not easily leave the hull. And occasionally we have hulls that surrounded by special material to ensure that the sound does not get out. And so it's all or a great deal in the engineering. On the other hand, you educate your people not to drop things, not to make a lot of loud noise. Mm. But again, it's primarily an engineering problem. Um, it is terribly important not to be heard? Absolutely. Stealth is our primary product. Mm. If we have stealth, the, that's a major attribute of a submarine. A second attribute of the nuclear submarine is endurance. We can go at a high speed for a long time mm. to get from here to there. Where diesel submarines were very limited by the speed that they could go. Diesel submarines, the original, the original nuclear submarines on the surface were slower than diesel submarines on the surface. But not only did we develop nuclear power, which came out in 1954 with the Nautilus, we then developed a new tear-shaped hull. And that tear-shaped hull gave us a much better hydrodynamic effect going through the water and made us much, much faster than even the diesel submarine on the surface. And so endurance and speed and silent running, stealth, are the our primary attributes of submarine operation. You mentioned the Soviet Union and their problem of nuclear subs. They were in your, am I right, in your service there, our primary adversary to focus on? Were they, were their subs silent? Were they hard to track? Were they any good at finding us? Well, all the submarines on, in all the countries will get better. They're all working to get better. So you're doing everything you can to study and learn everything you can about the opponent's submarines. Meanwhile, trying to look at what you're doing, how you can continue to quiet, become more and more quiet, as well as your sensors to hear other submarines operating. Mm. So it is a very dynamic problem. And so we might make progress over a few years. And then suddenly we find that the Soviet Union has made a jump in their progress. And so it's almost just as looking for submarines. It's almost a cat and mouse game. How can you get better? What can you do? And we have a lot of very, very smart people looking both to make our submarines quieter and to make our capabilities for listening better. Hmm. Back to life on the sub. With that many people together for that long, I assume that there are times when disciplinary action is needed. Someone's moving outside the rules or the, or the, the accepted culture. How is that handled? You can't put them in a brig over on the edge of the compound. <laughs> I would tell you 
that in my time on a submarine, it is not, it has never been on board the submarine where you have any problems. It's when they go on liberty. <laughs> so uh, I have never been aware of any problems. Now, as I've stated, a major factor of submarine safety is training. And so you're constantly training, and particularly in the engineering plants. As a matter of fact, to show Rickover's control, every time, every three months, commanding officers have to send an extensive report to Admiral Rickover and now Admiral Rickover's office and his successor, telling all the training you have done and all the problems that you have had. And so you are constantly training or you're on watch maneuvering the submarine. There isn't enough time for guys to get in trouble on board the submarine. My, my point is I have not seen people get in trouble on a submarine. They might get into a small argument, but that is immediately uh, diffused. You have to diffuse, I guess, the small arguments, human beings, what they are. Grudges can't be maintained, I guess, and all of that sort of thing. Um, let me ask you this. I want to throw a curve to you. Um, do you miss it, the silent service? That's an answer that I've thought about many times. I miss the people. I miss the people. Uh, I won't say I necessarily miss going to sea for three or four months, but it's the people and uh, the people that you, you know, you're on board for, let's say you're out for, uh, you're deployed for six months. So for six months, you're dealing with this group of people and you get pretty close to them as individuals. And so, it is that I miss, and I miss their professionalism. Mm -hmm. Do I miss being on board a submarine? Not necessarily. I, I kind of like Willow Valley. <laughs> Life live forward. Good. Um, let me come back to essentially uh, what happens in the career of, let's say, a Naval Academy graduate. Um, once people uh, move from that, let's say, the, the surface to sub, do they come back to surface vehicles or do, you, or do they stay in the silent surface? Very unusual for them to move back to uh, the surface force. Uh, either they retire or resign. Hmm. You know, the retention rate, we're constantly looking at what our retention is of these officers that we're putting so much training into. And so what can we do to retain them? And so as a result, uh, very, very seldom will a person go to a surface ship from the submarine force. Is there in there a little bit of the feeling that you're in the elite? Well, we are a very special group, uh, and uh, as I've I don't want to go. I don't want to go on a carrier. <laughs> as I've told you, we may be the silent service, but we are not the modest service. <laughs> so yes, we have a certain hubris, which occasionally shows. <laughs> Oh, I think that's great. Congratulations for all you've done. And, you know, uh, I guess uh, it puts a new spin on the uh, phrase, thank you for your service. <laughs> but thank you for being here today and going through this. Uh, once again, I've been talking with uh, retired Vice Admiral uh, Dan Cooper and ably assisted, here, assisted by, uh, by Luke Gagnon on the, on the technical side. And that concludes this interview. Thanks for listening, and be sure to listen again next week and every week 
Well, we'll have another exciting guest.